Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second that you adopted someone. Maybe not adopted them as your child, but you've taken someone who's a bit of an outcast. You've taken someone who is a bit abrasive, someone who gets up to no good, someone who has no impulse control. You've taken someone and you've kind of taken them under your wing and you decided that you're going to be really patient with them that you're going to bear with them, that you're going to suffer all the wrong that they do to you. You're going to continue loving them no matter what. And you see improvement, you see a whole range of things happen in them, and you see that this relationship is starting to bear fruit. And you believe that really that this person may change. And after investing years, investing so much time and sweat and toil and late night conversations, and have given so much of yourself to this person, this person decides that they want nothing to do with you anymore. They cut you out of their life. And years and years and years you have poured into this person has basically just been worthless. Imagine the way that you would feel. Imagine the rejection that you would feel. Today, we are reading that exact story. Today, we are going to be learning about what happened to Hosea's fateful marriage with Gomer. All his effort, all his striving, all his love and affection and grace and kindness that he has lavished upon this prostitute is going to come back and buy him. And she's going to say to him, I want nothing to do with you. In that story I just told you, you were the friend who cared for this person. You were the person that gave of yourself for that person. But really, when we think of it biblically, we are not that person. We're the other person in the relationship with God. We're the person who God gives and gives and gives and is gracious and kind and patient, and yet we continuously turn from Him. We continuously disobey Him. We continuously betray Him. And so when we are reading this passage today... The temptation is to put yourself into Hosea's position. But I want to flip the script on you for a second. I want you to see whether or not you can identify with Goma. We're going to start today by reading chapter 2. And chapter 2 is going to be talking about God's relationship with Israel. And then we're going to move on to what happens in Hosea's life. So I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. The first point is the divine betrothal. The second point is the divine covenant. And my third point is the divine husband. So we're going to pick up in Hosea chapter 2 from verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know 
the Lord. Now, Hosea, as a prophet, is ministering to the northern kingdom in a time of huge prosperity. Everyone is rich at this point. Well, if you're in the elite status, in the northern kingdom of Israel, wine is flowing, food is absolutely bursting out of the barns, children are growing strong, and everything looks like it's just going to keep getting more prosperous as time goes on. It keeps looking like the economy is going to keep churning, that things are going to keep moving up, and that uh, everyone is going to, things are going to go well for them. But... This makes it hard for Hosea, doesn't it, to do his ministry. His whole ministry is that God's judgment is coming. Hosea has to tell people who are prosperous that judgment will come and all these things are going to be taken away from you. The unthinkable will happen. All of this will come to ruin. God has blessed Israel. And what Israel has done, instead of giving credit to the God that has blessed them, they've blessed all the Canaanite gods for everything they've got. They thought that the Canaanite gods were the one responsible for this. They took the blessings that God has given upon to them and they've lavished it upon these false gods, these gods that don't really exist, with all their rituals and ceremonies. And listen to what God says. We're going to come back in Hosea 2 to verse 8. Listen to this language. She, that is Israel, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who was lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Strong language, isn't it? God is going to withdraw his blessings from them. He was going to take away his provision. He was going to take away his protection and he was going to take away his pleasure in them. They would be left exposed, naked and in danger. And who would they be in danger from? The nations. The nations that this nation had decided to become. Israel wanted to be just like the nations. They wanted all the gods of the nations, the customs of the nations, the licentiousness of all the nations. They wanted to be just to just become like them. And they're going to find out quickly that this world is actually a rather dangerous place. That these nations that they wanted to be like are not as friendly as they first appear. God says that your cities are going to be reduced to nothing. That no one will live in them. He says that forests are going to grow up and reclaim their houses. Wild animals are going to live in their temples and live in their palaces. And it's going to be as if their cities are haunted, abandoned. During the uh, Chernobyl nuclear disaster, this nearby city called Pripyat had to be abandoned at a moment's notice. And so when you go to this town, it looks like everyone just picked up in the middle of breakfast and left. There's still meals on the table. There's dolls and toys littering around. It just looks like all these people vanished in a second. And when you go to this town, which you can go with a decent amount of clearance and the right protective gear because it's still quite radioactive, 35 years since the disaster, you see this ghost town and nature has reclaimed the city. It's amazing how quick nature reclaims the cities when people do not live in them. 
It's amazing how quick the works of our hands come to nothing. This is what Hosea says is going to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. Their cities are going to be gone. Left destitute. Nature's going to reclaim them. You're going to show up to one of these abandoned houses and there's a pack of wolves who've moved in. It's their house now. Now, I want you to realize that this is really hard to imagine for the Israelites. It'd be as hard as us imagining Newcastle. Or imagine every single person in Newcastle disappeared and then you walked into Newcastle and it was reclaimed by nature. It would be surreal. It would be it would feel bizarre. Or Sydney being abandoned. It was equally hard for the Israelites to accept this. This idea of total judgment from God. It might seem that it was the final total annihilation of a people that God once had called his own. A people we know who have committed atrocities, worshipped other gods, used God's goodness. We see in the service of their twisted pursuits, they've, all the blessings God gave them, they'd, they'd given to the Baals. But this was not the end. God says, yes, your vineyards are going to be destroyed. Your fig trees are going to be laid to waste. Your grain fields laid hollow. But he was going to bring his people into the wilderness. He says, there in the wilderness, I will allure her. What does he say? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now, I'm not sure about you, but a trip to the desert is not in my top 10 best date destinations. Imagine maybe uh, some of the Jackson kids might enjoy that, but generally speaking, most normal people don't enjoy going out to the desert. And yet God is going to bring Israel into the desert and there he's going to win her love. The desert's hot, it's miserable, there's no water, there's no provisions, and that is exactly how God likes it. Why? When you live in a fertile land, it's very easy to think that everything you have done is by your own hands. It's very easy to think with plenty of rain and water, with crops growing and vineyards sprouting up, it's very easy to think that this was you. And if you believe in Canaanite gods, it's very easy to think that they blessed you and your sacrifices were successful and look at all this stuff that we have. God was going to do something different. He's going to lead them into the wilderness. And what's he going to put in the wilderness? Vineyards. Now, I'd love to get some of the Hunter Valley vineyard guys in and say, hey, what are the chances of us planting a vineyard right in the middle of the Simpson Desert? They'd be like, not a chance. Unless you have some huge air conditioning room, pumping out tons and tons and tons of greenhouse gases. That's the only way we can really get these vineyards cranking. What God was going to do was he was going to bring them back, in a sense, to the wilderness at first when they were in Exodus, when they had to rely on God day by day for provision. He was going to nourish them where there was no nourishment. He was going to provide for them where there was no provision. He was going to be their hope and strength within the trial and tribulation. He says that the valley of Achor, which means the valley of trouble, will be a door of hope. That's interesting. God was going to use the trouble of the Israelites. He was going to use the chaos of the Israelites to turn that into hope. And that is quite often how God operates. God was going to make it abundantly clear that he is the only maker of heaven and earth and he can intervene within his creation as he sees fit, whenever he sees fit. He can provide for us no matter what. And this seems to be a bit of a 
way that God interacts. He always leads us into the wilderness where we are destitute, we have no provisions, just to, in that moment of desperation, provide for us. So we know that He is our God and that He comes through and that He will provide. Jesus says, do not worry for what tomorrow may bring. God will provide. Not a sparrow will drop without the knowledge of God. He will provide us with clothing and food because He is a good God and we are far more valuable than the, the fields, the grasses of the field or the birds of the heaven. And He says... No longer will Israel call God my Baal, as if God was just another one of the ancient gods in the ancient world. They will instead call him my husband, my one and only, our only God, the intimate God. The names of the Baals, the gods of antiquity, would be laid to waste and remembered no more. And it seems to be quite literally the case. Only if you're some major history nerd, could you rattle off the 20 or 30 names of all the Baals that was worshipped during this time? Their names are forgotten. These gods are worthless. But the God who made the heavens and earth, his name is still exalted to this day. God, he says here, will betroth Israel to himself forever. Now, you've got to pay attention whenever the Hebrew mentions something three times. Because three times is a very important number in Hebrew. And he mentions, I will betroth you to me, this phrase, I will betroth you to me, three times. He mentions it three times. You can remember God in Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. When something's repeated three times, it means this is really important. God is not only holy, but He is the holiest. He is the most exalted. He is the highest. When God says, I will betroth you to me three times, He's saying this will happen. Nothing can stop it. But it's not just, I will betroth you to me in general, but in a particular way. He says, number one, I will betroth you to me forever. Number two, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And number three, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. This is something that God was going to do. This is something that you can rely on him to do. Israel was not going to do this for themselves. Israel is not going to come along and say, God, we want to, we want you to be our God again. We want to be betrothed to you again. We want to be your people again. That's not how this works. God says, I will betroth you To me, it was going to be God's initiative. It was going to be his plan. He was going to do this for Israel. He was going to win them. And they weren't going to come to him. God wasn't going to come to them on their terms. They were going to come to God on his terms. He was going to save them and he was going to change them. Notice that. He was going to bring in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy and faithfulness. It's going to be new people. People marked by faithfulness. In fact, those who truly belong to God will be faithful to the end. Because God has done that work. And nothing can thwart the plans of God. This new people were going to be recipients of a new covenant. A greater covenant. A covenant of grace. He says, I will make for them a covenant on that day. 
And the nature of this covenant is really important. It brings me to my second point, the divine covenant. So I'm going to keep reading only a few verses from verse 21. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now you remember the three children that Hosea had, right? Jezreel, no mercy and not my people. These three children that he had. And God said to him, name them after these people. You can think of Jezreel as being named bloodshed. It was quite a uh, offensive name to be given Jezreel where a massive slaughter occurred within that valley. And God was going to make this new covenant. In verse 18, I, I mentioned before, he says, I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make them lie down in safety. See, this new covenant would result in a new world. This new thing that God was going to do on that day was going to result in a new earth. That creation itself would once again be in harmony and no longer subject to sin and misery. Think on what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verses 19 and 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And at this point in Hosea, you might be getting a little bit scared. We're not just talking about the redemption of Israel anymore. We're not just talking about the redemption of God's people. God is going to restore all of creation. Things that just seem par from the course, like war and famine and drought and disease and death, are going to be no more. One day, God is not just going to restore humanity, but all of creation itself. This is, in its language, a restoration of the Garden of Eden, a return to the way that God had made the world originally, but this new world would be more glorious. This new world would be far more I guess, wealthy, prosperous, but amazing. We're still waiting for this promise to be fulfilled when Jesus returns in the second coming. And when this order is done away with and the work of the church on this earth is finished, we will see him return. And you might remember the names of Hosea's children from last week. Jezreel, meaning bloodshed, no mercy, and not my people, where God is going to reverse those judgments. That's what he says right here. He's going to reverse them. Here is a clever double meaning in the Hebrew that English readers can't quite pick up on. Jezreel originally means God sows or God plants. So what once was a name of judgment, bloodshed, will be a name of grace. That God will plant Israel in the land forever. They will forever have a home, basically. A place where they were evicted. The valley of um, Jezreel became a place where Israel's, Israelites were defeated and evicted would be the place with which God plants them forever. He was going to reverse this judgment. It was going to be the opposite of what he initially said. And he will show his mercy again to no mercy. 
and not my people will be called the people of God. In fact, the New Testament picks up on this language. It shows up quite often, but 1 Peter 2.10 is the best example of this. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This promise in Hosea in 740 BC is for us. It's for us to hold on to as true. It's for us to hold on to as uh, something to rely upon. It's not just some time in the distant future when Jesus returns. This is for us right now. God pours out his blessing and mercy on his earth but it will come to its complete fulfillment on the second advent when Jesus returns. And on that day, those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, we know from Revelation 19, will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can see the language of Hosea being picked up all throughout the New Testament. When the true Israel, the church of God, is married to her divine husband, and Hosea was privileged to be chosen as a living symbol of this. That is all basically my introduction to my third point, the story that you guys may know really well. And my third point is the divine husband. So chapter three, a very small chapter, probably the smallest chapter in all of the prophets. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. But the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. We come to the prophet Isaiah right now, him really on the bottom. His wife has abandoned him. She's willingly abandoned him and she's returned to her former life as a prostitute. She's shacked up with some other guy who's either pimping her out or he, he's even betrayed her and he's sold her into slavery. Whatever's happened, Gomer has returned to her old ways. She's desperate to get back. And now she's in big trouble. She's racked up this huge debt and she's effectively a slave now. And she's got no hope of ever paying it back or getting back out again. The lovers that she thought would give her everything she needed only exploited her and now control her. And God says something amazing to Hosea. He says, go, go to her, love her again. Now I can understand the first part. I'd be like, okay, I'll go, I'll go, whatever. You know, I'll go do it. If I have to do it, okay, I'll do it. But that's not what God says to him. He doesn't say, go to her, go buy her back. He says, love her again. He says, love her. The woman who's betrayed you, who's abandoned you with your three children, who has deserted you and got herself in all sorts of mischief. The mischief that 
Hosea probably told her was wrong. She should have known what she was getting herself into. She deserves this. Why, God, would I have to go not only win her back, but love her again? How could I love her after what she's done? She's betrayed me. She's humiliated me. And Hosea has to go and love her. Think about that. Think about what God is asking from him. I'm sure Hosea is just done. He's done with her. He doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. But he has to love her again. Why? Why did God tell Hosea to love her again? Because that's how God loves his people. Even as the Lord loves Israel. It breaks the heart of God to see his people turning to other gods. It breaks his heart to see them betraying him. Why? Because he loves them. He loves them. He loves Israel and they betrayed him and they've gone after other gods and the text tells us they've loved cakes of raisins. Think about that for a second. They disregard and have such disdain for God that they love raisin cakes more than they love him. That'd be like someone leaving our church and we find out that they've sniffed out this satanic temple and they're attending the satanic temple and we say to them, what on earth are you doing? Why are you attending this church? And they say, you don't understand. The donuts after the service are so good. They have great donuts. We'd be like, really? That's why you left. You left for some donuts. And God says, you abandoned me because they, you love even raisin cakes more than you love me. They don't have to offer you very much. And you're willing to walk out the door. You're willing to go. It's so superficial. It's just mind-boggling. It just highlights really a truth about humanity that's hard to come to terms with. But we really are this superficial. We really are this shallow and insincere. The Israelites were so easily manipulated. You just had to offer them a few raisin cakes and they'll be there. It doesn't take much for unregenerate people to turn away from the true and living God. It doesn't take much to entice them away. I had boys in my old youth group when I was in Canberra turn away at the chance that something might happen with their girlfriends. You think you're going to abandon God for something so trivial, something so superficial, something that God has only withheld from you for a time. And yet we do it all the time. It doesn't even have to be something like that. It could just be anything. God would have been completely in the right to abandon Israel to her lovers. He would have been completely in the right. And I want you to notice Hosea was completely in the right to divorce Gomer and never have anything to do with her again. He would not have committed anything wrong. He wouldn't have done anything apart from disobeying God. But if God God didn't tell him to do that, he, he didn't have to do that. He would have been completely righteous to divorce her. Israel deserved their judgment, just as Gomer deserved the situation she got herself into. And yet, what does God say? Go. Go back to the woman who was already yours. And so here's Hosea. He's going back to the bad side of town again. The the side of town that he thought he'd left behind when he first married Gomer. 
He's walking the streets again, humiliated, defeated, scorned, being heaped upon him as he's walking door to door saying, is my wife in there? She in there? And he finds her. Eventually, somehow he finds her. And she's in debt. She's desolate. She's alone. She's desperate. And she has handlers. And he goes in. He says, that's my wife. They just scoff at him, right? No, she's not your wife anymore. She's ours. She is ours now. She belongs to us. It's not true. She belongs to Hosea. She's Hosea's wife. But Hosea simply asks, how much? And a price is given. 15 shekels of silver, a homer and a lethek of barley. A decent amount. It's no small fee. It's a lot of money. Humiliated, Hosea purchases back what already belongs to him. He pays for his wife and he takes her back home to him. Not only did he ransom her from her debtors, but from her destructive way of life. He says to her, no longer play the whore. Be faithful to me. I will be so to you. And you feel for Hosea. He probably despised that scorn. He despised the shame. This prophet of God, this holy man, this righteous man is being put in this situation. But in this moment, Hosea was privy to one of the most powerful lessons that humanity could ever have felt. For this brief moment, he could taste the costly love that God has for us. It's utterly mind-blowing to think of the love of God for his people. When Jesus came to rescue us, he despised the scorn too. He despised the shame of being treated like a petty criminal when he had done nothing wrong. He did not deserve to be walking that day towards Calvary. He did not deserve the whips, the insults, the mocking, the nails, the blood dripping down to the dust. He did not deserve any of that. God had to pay a price to win back what was already his. Think about that. We already belong to him. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. We already belong to Him. We already are His. But God can't just take us home to be with Him. Because there is a huge debt hanging over all of our heads. We are corrupted by sin. It must be paid for. A good, righteous, just God has to punish. If He does not punish, He is not good. If He does not punish, He is not just. A just God cannot sweep it under the rug. But unlike Hosea, who ransomed Gomer with money, Christ ransomed us with his precious blood. I wonder if Peter was thinking about this passage in 1 Peter verses 1 to 18 to 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus paid the ultimate price to win his bride, to ransom them from their futile ways and to restore them to righteousness. Only the blood of Jesus truly transforms us. Isaiah says that the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord and David their king. 
You see, Hosea's story was a living symbol to point to something greater. God says, one day what happened here, Hosea, with you and Goma, will happen in the future. Just as you won your wife back and brought her into your home, so will I win for me a people and bring them into my home to be part of me and my kingdom, to be loved by me. They will fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And who does that describe? Us, doesn't it? All of us who have repented and put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, who have been bought and redeemed, who love the King and fear him all their days. But I'll ask you this, who loved who first? God loved us first. He loved us while we were sinners. He loved us while we were his enemies. He loved us while we were like Gomer, chasing the foolish ways of this world, lost and with this unpayable debt. That is when he loved us. You always have to remember that. That is when he loved you. Because whenever you get puffed up like the Pharisees and think, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy over here. Just remember that there is no difference between you and him except for the goodness of a holy, righteous, loving, and gracious God. The book of Hosea is a call to seek the Lord, day in and day out, knowing that He has redeemed us and rescued us. The call of Hosea is to abandon those lovers, abandon the false gods, whether they be the god Molech or Ashtaroth, or the gods of money, relationships, sex, drugs, status and power, or whatever your gods are. Why? They will leave you destitute, unsatisfied, desperate. Come to the one who has bought you, who has brought you into his home, who loves you, and who has invited you to be part of his kingdom for all eternity. So my challenge is this. Never move on from the gospel. We often find that when we move on from the gospel, that's when things start to get hard, isn't it? When we move on from that simple message of forgiveness, when we move on from that wonder that us, little old us, could be saved, and when we move on from the fact that we were destitute and we were without hope, when we start to move on to performance, and we start to move on to, oh, I'm a good little boy, I'm a good little girl, I tick all the boxes, I do everything right, when we start moving on to that section of where we often always go towards, that's when we find ourselves out of fellowship with God and often out of fellowship with people around us, but also we find ourselves in a dangerous position. Do you know what Goma did? She went home. I don't know where you guys are today, whether you believe and trust in Jesus, or if you do, whether you feel distant from God. But the call is the same. Come home. Let's pray. Father, how great is the message of this book. And how far beyond all love that we could ever possibly know in this world. Lord, that you have called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That you called us out of evil and into goodness. You called us out of being destitute and made us wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Lord, thank you that we have treasures in heaven that will not rust, that moth cannot destroy and thief break in and steal.
We thank you, Lord, that you offer the only true satisfaction, the only true hope, the only true chance of forgiveness. And Father, it's hard to know that there are so many out there who spurn your love, who prefer the lovers that abuse them and mistreat them and the sin that they cling to so tightly. And Father, we use so much of your blessings and we lavish it upon other lovers. But Lord, would your spirit awaken us again to the truth of the gospel? Would your spirit bring us to the foot of the cross to see the mercy poured out upon us by the suffering and punishment of your son, Jesus? Would we once again be washed clean? Would we once again know the truth that is in your son? Father, I pray for all these people, my brothers and sisters, your dearly beloved people. Lord, I pray that we would once again just have this renewed amazement at the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the book of Hosea. We thank you for all your word, which is inspired and breathed out by you. And I pray that it will be profitable to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.